Our scripture passage this morning is John eleven seventeen through 27. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, it is really good to be with you this morning. And um, I'm having to do something here that I don't normally do. Normally, I'm prepared enough. I preach on an iPad. And uh, I got so caught up in conversation because I was so happy to be here that I didn't download my sermon notes. <laughs> so it's coming up. But I got a few things I want to say as, uh, as it comes up. Um, I, I, I genuinely am happy to be here. I'm not just saying that. I really am happy to be here. Let me tell you why. Um, about this time last year, uh, I was at my church in Austin, Texas, lovely church. I love my church, but we were going through some particularly difficult uh, times. Uh, here it is. We were facing some troubles, you know, as many churches do. Things happen in the life of a church that there's turmoil, there's trouble. And, um, and when I was asked to come and speak at this uh, event, this D-Now event, I was, I was happy to come and preach the word. Then I came to your church on Sunday morning, and I cannot tell you, I, 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 in all honesty, I cannot express how refreshing it was to my soul and how badly I needed to be here that Sunday. You know why? There's several reasons. One of them, one of the main reasons, not the only one, but one of the main reasons why I so badly needed to be here that Sunday was because I needed to hear the voices of God's people singing loudly. I needed to hear with one voice God's people singing the praises to God because of the gospel. And I can't tell you how refreshed I feel right now. I mean, you guys don't just sing. Like, you shout. Like, like you're yelling. You, some of you should try to sit up in the front row and just hear the voices project. Man, it's a, what a blessing. And it is a taste of what's to come, when we're going to be with Jesus forever in heaven, singing praises to him, rejoicing, praising him forever. So I'm so thankful to be here. You know I love uh, your pastor, Blake. He and I met in uh, seminary, and, uh, and Blake is, I, I look up to him. In fact, I look up to him so much that I wanted to dress like him this morning. <laughs> Nathan said, man, you're rocking the the three-piece suit, I'm like, yeah, man, just trying to be like Blake. That's my one goal in life. <laughs> Grow up, want to be like Blake. I'm, but that, in all honesty, I'm, man, I'm so thankful for him. He's been such a blessing to me, uh, calling him through, through certain situations that I need help with, thinking through uh, what a blessing it is to have fellow brother pastors to walk alongside 
And I, I do want to tell you that our church in Austin, Texas, Kinney Avenue Christian Fellowship, is a wonderful church. We are in a place of such sweet fellowship, such sweet unity and joy, uh, because it is centered upon the gospel. I'm preaching through the book of Romans. You, you know what I'm talking about. I listen to all Blake's sermons, and uh, I'm trying not to copy them. Uh, I'm not. Don't worry. I'm not. Uh, but, but you know how Romans is. It sets the foundation for the church, and the church is being built on the gospel according to Romans. It's beautiful. In fact, I was talking to Blake earlier. I was thinking about doing a topical series at the beginning of January. We had been in Advent, and I did a New Year's sermon, et cetera, et cetera. I wanted to do a topical series. And when I told the church, they seemed disappointed. Like, we want to get back into Romans. Like, all right, that's what we're doing. Back into Romans. And it is a sign of great health in a church. And I'm saying this to you all as well because I think, I know that's the case here. It is a sign of great health in a church when the congregation just wants to be fed the word. And they want to work through the steady exposition of the word verse by verse, passage by passage through a book of the Bible. So keep eating it up. We need God's word. And that's what we tried to do with the kids this weekend. I gave them God's word. It was a joy to be with them. I think they ate it up. I think they were encouraged overall. What we did this weekend was we walked through various passages in the Gospel of John that um, has different people encountering Jesus. People who are, are different from one another but encountering the same Christ, different problems, different difficulties, different sinful bents that they had. Nevertheless, they needed the same thing. They needed an encounter with Jesus Christ. We looked at John chapter four with the woman at the well, a desperate woman who had five husbands and the guy she was currently with was not even her husband, seemingly indicating that she had given up on this commitment thing and, and still wanted to, she craves companionship, she craves some kind of relationship, but she wanted the benefits without commitment. And Jesus fully exposed her sin and her shame was wide open. And then he gave, him, gave her himself and that's what she needed. She said, to, she said to him, we know Messiah is gonna come and he's gonna make all things right. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And then we looked at John chapter six. We observed the behavior of a crowd who had their bellies miraculously filled with bread the day before Jesus uh, multiplied this bread, few, five loaves of bread to feed probably up to 20,000 people. And they come back seeking Jesus in John chapter six. Yet what they're looking for is not Jesus himself, but what Jesus can give them. Bread, temporary satisfaction. And what does Jesus give them instead? What does he say? He says, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Clearly, he's talking about more than physical bread. And then we encountered a man who was born blind in John chapter 9. And this man is given physical sight by Jesus. And when his eyes were opened, Jesus tells him, puts mud on his face, go wash in the pool of Siloam. He washes, he can see, but Jesus isn't around. So he hasn't yet seen Jesus with his physical eyes. And yet as the story progresses, it was, it was really neat. 
uh, last night as I was, I was trying to make this point that this man saw Jesus before he saw Jesus with his physical eyes. He saw him with the eyes of his heart. He came to embrace him and believe in him. And when I made that point, it's kind of drawn the students in. I was saying, did, when did this man see Jesus? When did he actually see Jesus? One of the students said, oh, oh, <laughs> not when he saw it with his eyes, but in his, his heart. And she's pointing to her heart and said, yes, get it, you got it. That was very encouraging. I get excited about the little things. The restoration of his physical sight was meant to be a pointer to the need that we all have to have the eyes of our hearts opened to the knowledge of who Jesus is. Every encounter with Christ is centered upon Christ. It is all about him. We need him. And this encounter in John chapter 11 is no different. Many people read this text and think they walk away that the main point mainly has to do with Jesus's power to resurrect the dead. We just read that portion of this passage, and that is a huge point in this passage. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and we need to trust him as that. However, John seems to give us several hints throughout the passage that the primary encounter with Christ here, the primary theme, the primary focus of this encounter with Christ pertains to his love. I'm not sure if you've read this passage before, but there are several hints throughout it that indicate what you need and what I need is to encounter the love of Jesus Christ. However, many people, even Christians, have no clue what that means. You might think we know. But do we really know what it means for Jesus to love us? What does it mean at the bottom? When you push to its deepest level, what does it mean for Jesus to love you? Many people, even Christians, think that what it means at the bottom for Jesus to love me is that he loves me in such a way that makes much of me. He, his love magnifies me. He loves me because of something about me that he just sees as irresistible. I came across a book, a children's book. I don't normally do this, but I could not resist. It just serves as such a good illustration for how many people tend to think about the love of God for them. So we're going to have a little story time. Is that okay? The title is, That's How Much God Loves You. And most of it is pretty decent. First question, have you ever wondered just how much God loves you? He loves you as much as a polar bear is white and a daffodil is yellow and an apple is red. He loves you as much as the sky is high and the ocean is wide. He loves you as much as the summer is warm, as much as the winter is snowy and cold. Not totally accurate in Abilene, but close. At times, I mean, there's been times where it's been snowing cold. God loves you as much as birds can sing and cats can purr and as much as dogs can wag their tails. God loves you as much as pancakes are fluffy and maple syrup is sticky sweet and butter is golden and melty. 
God loves you as much as trees are tall and swings can swing and balls go bouncy bounce. God loves you as much as the stars can twinkle, as much as the moon smiles down at night and the sun warms us during the day. God loves you as much as daddies are tall and mommies are soft. That's what they said. That wasn't me. When my wife first read this to our kids, she stopped in her tracks and said, something's wrong there. But it goes on to say, and hugging mommies makes you feel loved. Now that's true. And then it ends like this. Do you wonder how much God loves you? God loves you more than anything. Is that true? More than anything? Hmm. And notice how the book closes. God loves you more than anything. And to illustrate that point, it closes with this. That's how much God loves you and how convenient there's a little mirror for you to bow down and worship. Is this how much God loves us? Is that the way God demonstrates his love for us by making much of us? You want to know how much God loves you? Just look in the mirror. I would propose to you that is not the picture of scripture. What you should be looking at is not yourself. What does it mean for God to love us? No doubt. No doubt. God loves us with an intensity so strong and a weightiness so massive that we can't fathom. Our minds cannot comprehend, but we should not conclude from that, that what it means for God to love us is that he makes much of us. The love of God means that he gives us what we most need, and what we most need is not self-exaltation. What we most need is to forget ourselves and be caught up in something way more satisfying than ourselves. So I want to look at John chapter 11 and walk through this account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, kind of as use it as a test case to discern what it truly means for God to love us. I see there's three main themes in this passage. The resurrection power certainly is a main theme. It's a big point. But I want to draw out three other main themes in this passage that by the end, I hope we'll see as these themes fit together we'll understand what it truly means to be loved by God. And man, I hope you walk away feeling so loved by God this morning, way more than looking in the mirror. So let's begin. Theme number one, we can call it the surprising love of God. The surprising love of God. Look at verse one. Verse one. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. (coughs) Excuse me the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now, it's, it's interesting. Why does John bring up that point in verse two? This hasn't happened yet. Mary has not yet anointed Jesus's feet. That's not till chapter 12. So why does he say it here? Clearly, John is trying to establish for us what is the kind of relationship that Jesus has with this family. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. 
He loves her. He loves them. They love each other. And therefore, for John to open up this story by mentioning that Lazarus, the brother, is ill, what would you expect to happen? Let's keep reading. Verse 3. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. It says it. He clearly loves Lazarus, the one whom is ill, our brother. You love, the one you love, that's how they're defining Lazarus. His love for them is so strong that he can just be called the one whom you love. Well, doesn't Jesus love everyone? Sure, but there was a special kind of relationship clearly he had with his family. The one whom you love is ill. Others can see it. Mary and Martha were the ones who said that to him. They saw how much Jesus loved Lazarus. And notice what it says in verse four. This is very important. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. He whom you love is ill. Everyone knows Jesus loves him, loves these sisters. Why then does Jesus respond like this to the news of Lazarus' illness? He does say, this illness does not lead to death. I think, if you know the story, it kind of (laughs) does. What does he mean? Well, clearly we know the end of the story. He's hinting here. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But it's very important to the story, to this account that really happened, what Jesus says in the latter half of verse four, it, the illness, is for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Lazarus' illness is for the glory of God. Lazarus got ill so that the Son of God could be glorified through that illness. How? I mean, seriously, How in the world can the glory of Jesus be put on display through the illness of his friend whom he loves? How can your illness, your family member's illness, your friend's illness put on display how glorious Jesus is? Do you think of your ailments like that? I'm sure there's many of you in here who struggle with illness, chronic pain, Cancer, autoimmune disease. Is there any deeper ultimate purpose to what you're suffering in your body? There is. There is. They are not merely products of living in a fallen world. There are deep purposes that pertain to the glory of God and the love of God. What is it? Let's keep reading. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So in case we didn't get it the first time, John wants to make it unmistakably clear. Jesus loves this whole family. But why? Why do you think he's stating it again? I mean, didn't we already get the gist of that in the first four verses that he loves them? Why does he say it so plainly in verse 5? He says it so plainly in verse 5 because of what's about to happen in verse 6. When you compare verses 5 and 6 together, it looks like they're contradictions. Look at verse 6. 
So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What? Does that make sense to you? You're not reading the end of the story yet. At this point, what does that look like? Verse 5, Jesus loves this family. Therefore, if he loves them, what do you think he would then do? What would you do? If you heard someone is ill whom you really love, you're going to come and try to meet their needs and bring their aid, especially if you have the power to heal them, which Jesus certainly did. I mean, he could have healed Lazarus from that spot if he wanted to. Why in the world would he not only rush to heal Lazarus, but instead he would deliberately stay where he was a few days longer and and delay his travel there? What's he doing? This is meant to feel odd to us as we read this account. But we're also meant to understand this decision on the part of Jesus as an expression of his love. Do you notice the first word in verse 6? I don't know what translation you have. Mine is the English standard. The first word is so. Now, some, some translations, unfortunately, translate it yet. And I understand why, but that's not what the word is in the original language. Think about what would be conveyed if it was the word yet in verse 6. Listen to the flow again, and I'll read it with that word. Verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet, (laughs) you can hear my interpretive tone, yet, when he heard that he was Lazarus ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What does that sound like? It makes it sound like the decision to stay two days longer was contrary to his love for them, right? The word yet makes it sound like that's a, this is a, like a conjunction here to show a contrast. He loves them, but he stayed two days longer, which makes it certainly look like he don't love them. But that's not what's meant to be conveyed at all. The word so is in the original language, or the word therefore. What is that? What does that convey? He loves them. Therefore, he stayed where he was two days longer. What does that mean? That denotes purpose. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He had a purpose. He loves them. Therefore, he stayed where he was. Waiting two extra days before going to Lazarus, was a demonstration of his love for this family, not a contradiction of it. That's the point of verses five and six. Now you should be asking, how? Like, (laughs) how is that the case? Staying two days longer doesn't seem to be a demonstration of it. It seems to be a contradiction of his love for them. So how in the world is a demonstration of his love for them? And this leads to theme Number two, which we can call the creation of faith. The creation of faith. Verse seven. Then, after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day... 
He does not stumble, but he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. And Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Notice this, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go with him. Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us go as well that we may die with him. Did you notice what it said there in verse 15? What is the reason why Jesus was not there, why he stayed? So that you may believe. Believe, belief, is another word for faith. It's another word for trust. It's a word for depend upon. And even in the Gospel of John, it's an idea that, that carries embrace. Jesus hung back because he loved Lazarus and the family, and he hung back so that the disciples would believe in him. They would trust him. There's a kind of creation of faith here that's taking place. Jesus intentionally did not go so that they would believe. And the same is true for other people as well. Notice how the story continues. Verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. You notice the hint of faith there in her? She knows Jesus had the ability to heal her brother before he died. And now she still thinks that he can do something, something that will make it better even though he's dead. But it's probably the case that she didn't have in mind resurrection from the dead. Notice what it continues to say, verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, you notice the emphasis there. Let me read, let me read these, these verses again. As we continue, she, clearly she's thinking of, of future, right? I know. I know he's going to rise on the last day. So you can see she doesn't have in mind what Jesus is about to do. It's not even on her radar that he would do something like this. Now, I want you to notice the emphasis in verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And what does she say? Verse 27, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Clearly, there's an emphasis there, right? What was it, like five times the word belief was mentioned? Whenever you see repetition like that in the Bible, your ears should perk up. Something's going on here. This is an emphasis. Belief, faith. Now, I want to figure out 
What does Jesus mean by believe? Whoever believes in me, I'm really trying to nail this point home this weekend with the students. Does belief mean merely intellectually assenting to a certain body of facts about Jesus? The devil does that, right? He's got good theology up here. Belief is so much more than believing facts. Listen to how Jesus put it in John chapter 6. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever believes in me shall never hunger. Whoever comes to me shall never thirst. Believing is coming, moving towards Jesus with your heart so that he satisfies the deepest longings of your soul. You trust him to give you what you most need. It's what belief is. You're depending upon him to give you what you most need. In John chapter 6, the emphasis is Jesus himself. What that crowd most needed was the bread of life. I am the bread. I satisfy your hunger. You need me. But here in John chapter 11, yes, that's true. Same emphasize. We need Jesus himself. But there's something that John 11 draws out about Christ that we need so badly. What is it about him that we so badly need? Well, John 11 is getting there. But there's a similar exchange that takes place, that took place between Jesus and Martha that also happens with Martha's sister, Mary. Look at verse 28. Verse 28. When Jesus had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he is calling you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in, in the house consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And now I want you to notice verse 33. Notice the love of Jesus Christ for her. Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Why? Why do you feel that way? Deeply moved. I mean, this is strong language. Deeply moved, like in his bowels even. Moved in his spirit, deep inside. And greatly troubled. Well, it could be that he was feeling what Mary was feeling, right? Like his, his heart was so moved as he sees one whom he loves so much hurting deeply. I think, I think that could be the case. I mean, as a dad, I feel this kind of thing quite often, right? My kids, if I see them hurting, I'm, I'm going to feel something there. But I think there's more going on here than just that. You may have a footnote in your Bible next to the word moved in verse 33. You see that? If you trace that footnote down, it might say it could also be translated, he was indignant. I think that's what's going on here. Jesus was angry. And no doubt, we know his anger was righteous. 
right? We don't have to question that. But why was he angry? Well, some think that he was angry just about the fact that death took his friend Lazarus, whom he loved, and it's brought so much pain on other people whom he loved. And so Jesus is just angry about the presence and reality of death in this world. Maybe he's mad at Adam. <laughs> messed it up, man. My people whom I love are crying. I think this doesn't make sense to me. Because Jesus knows what he's about to do. I mean, he's about to solve this problem for them where they're not going to feel any more pain. He's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows their sorrow is going to be turned into joy. And for him to kind of have generic anger towards death, just it feels random. It doesn't make sense to what's going on in this story. Remember, Jesus already said Lazarus' death has a deeper purpose. He already said that. It was meant to show in some way his glory. So why would he be angry that death snatched his friend? He already declared to the disciples, he's already dead. He, he said that to the disciples even before Jesus knew, or even before uh, Jesus was told that Lazarus had died. He's, he knows what's going on. He's totally in control of this situation. So what's he angry about? I want you to look carefully at what was said just before it mentions Jesus' anger. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her, Mary, saw her weeping, and notice this, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in the spirit and greatly troubled. It was when he saw Mary weeping, and she's genuinely bawling her eyes out, and then, at the same time, he sees the Jews who had come with her also weeping. Why? What's going on? This is what made him angry? She's weeping and they're weeping. And he got angry. What's, why, is, why is he angry? Well, you remember back in verse 31, these Jews were around to console this family, to console Mary. And they would just do whatever she did. If she's you know, going off to the tomb, they're following her, and they're just kind of there with her. It is almost certainly the case that these were the religious leaders in that day who functioned like professional mourners. That was a thing. For someone to come, kind of be hired for it, and mourn with you. You can imagine how genuine that is when you're getting paid to mourn. <laughs> They didn't genuinely care about Mary and Martha. It's, it's pretty evident they were putting on a show. And we know that's the case as well because that is a pattern with these religious leaders throughout the Gospel of John. They love to present themselves in a way that people will look at them and say, wow, look at how godly you are. Look at how caring you are. And that is what made Jesus really mad. Why? Because Jesus genuinely loves Mary. He genuinely loves this family. He's not putting on a show. And that becomes clear even in verse 34. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. In verse 35, Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. And it is an expression of love. Notice, it's likely he's not weeping here in front of Mary and Martha in order to make it look like he loves them 
In fact, the language seems to indicate they're like, come and see. And so they kind of head off and he hangs back and that's when he weeps. He's not trying to put on a show in front of them. He genuinely loves them. And yet some did see him weeping. Notice their response, verse 36. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who, have opened, who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? I think that's a response from those professional mourners. They are questioning Jesus' love for this family. Can you see why he's not happy with them? <laughs> he really loves them. And he's doing all of this to create faith in them. What is the faith? We already said that it's a faith that trusts in Jesus to give them what they most need. Jesus is after their highest good. He's not after an immediate temporal satisfaction that these professional mourners are giving who don't really love this family. He's after their highest good. What is that? What about Jesus Christ do we most need that demonstrates his greatest love for us? This leads to theme number three. We can call it the display of the glory of Jesus. Verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again. That's, that's the same language that was just mentioned uh, in verse 33. He's deeply moved again, which means he's, I think he's angry again. Why? Well, what was just said in verse 37? Could not he who have opened the eyes of this blind man also have kept this man from dying? What's the answer to that question? Yes, he could have. Jesus could have kept this man from dying. And therefore, what these people are assuming about Jesus' motive in not healing Lazarus is what? He doesn't love him. He doesn't love this family. That's why he's angry. They're questioning the authenticity of his love for this family. And that's one thing that Jesus gets really angry about. <laughs> that should make you feel loved. Anybody who comes and questions Jesus' love for you and he gets mad about that, don't you feel loved? I mean, man, we got some, a lot of parents in here, and I've already seen it. It's fun to watch, to see parents interact with their kids. And it's obvious to me that there is a culture of parental love toward their kids in this church. Praise the Lord. Uh, it's not that parenting isn't hard. There's, there's difficult times, no doubt. But man, you know your love for your kids. Like, you know it. Imagine someone saying to you, I don't think you really love your kids. How are you going to feel? Dads, how are you going to feel? Probably going to deck them which isn't the Christian thing to do. Don't do that. Be like Jesus. Get angry, but don't deck. <laughs> you can feel why Jesus would be so upset here. His anger actually highlights his love. He loves his people so much that for someone to question it makes him indignant. Verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Hmm, significant about that. Do you notice 
uh, how John describes Martha now. At one point, they were described as, you know, those whom Jesus loved. And now Martha is described as the sister of the dead man. That's kind of insensitive. Is he being insensitive? Why would he put it like that? Giving as Martha's identity now, she's the sister of a dead guy. What's the point? She's, John is making the point, Lazarus is gone. Like he is totally dead. In fact, that's highlighted even further when, when she says that he's been dead for four days. The same was mentioned in, back in verse 17. Now that's significant because there was a common belief in that time that after someone died, their soul kind of hovered over their body to see if it should re-enter. And then when decomposition sets in, they say, no, I'm not going back in there, and they head out. And and they would head out, you know, body would decompose after the third or the fourth day, like, I'm out of here. That was a common view in that time. I'm not saying it's true, saying that's often what was viewed in that time. And John is writing to a people in that time who would have maybe thought that. And therefore, after the fourth day, there was no hope. He's making it utter clear this guy was dead. And therefore, what Jesus is about to do is going to blow their minds. He is going to create faith in them to see what? Verse 40. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? This is where this account has been leading this whole time. He loves them so much that he does what is needed to create faith in them, to behold, to see what they most need, the glory of God. Look at verse 41. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. And I would propose to you, if you're a Christian this morning, that's how you got saved. Dead people were raised from the dead because the voice of Jesus said, get up. Lazarus wasn't hanging out in that tomb like, no, I'm good. Let's hang out here for a little bit. The voice of Jesus commands a response. Lazarus come out and the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. It's glorious, isn't it? It is a picture of Jesus's glory. Jesus loves us. He loves us, even when it's surprising, even when it doesn't look like he loves us. He's still loving us so intensely, but he does it. He loves us to create faith in us, to see his glory. Christ does not love us by making much of us. He loves us by giving us the ability to make much of him. Why? That's what we need. We, listen, you will be cut short if you think you need to feel better about yourself. The whole point of faith 
And the whole point of feeling loved by God is to forget yourself and be caught up in who he is for you in Christ. That's glory. You're caught up in his glory, as I've heard it said so many times. No one, no one goes to the Grand Canyon to boost their self-esteem. No one looks on that massive gap and say, man, I'm awesome. They don't want to say that. They forget themselves and they're caught up in something so massive, so much bigger than themselves. And guess what? They're in awe and they're happy. They're content. Their joy is full. One person put it like this. We have turned the love of God and the the gospel of Christ into a divine endorsement of our delight in many lesser things, especially the delight in being made much of. The acid test of biblical God-centeredness and faithful to the gospel is this. Do you feel more loved because God makes much of you or because at the cost of his son, he enables you to enjoy making much of him forever? That's why Jesus died. He died to take care of your sin problem, to remove all obstacles so that you could see him in all his glory. And I would propose to you, that's love. That's not self-centeredness on the part of Jesus. He's not some egomaniac. It's all about self-glory in ways that we are. It's love because he's giving us what we most need. There's nothing more glorious in all the world than Jesus Christ. Why would he cut you short and give you something lesser than him? That's love. And he died to secure that. We chase after so many lesser glories. That's what sin is. We're going after things that, that we prefer over God, like, like a big bowl of sugar as opposed to meat and potatoes or whatever kind of sustenance food that you like. We go after that and say, this is better. It feels better for a second. We come crashing down. Jesus died for our sins. That means he died to pay the penalty for our pursuit of lesser glories, of preferring other things over himself. And he did that, why? Because he loves us. And what does that mean? It means that in his death, he secured for you, that you would know him and be awakened to the reality of who he is in all his glory. That is love. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How does that demonstrate his love? At the cost of his son, God frees you to enjoy making much of him forever. God's love for us is so intense, it's so strong, that he's willing to give up his son for us to give us what we most need. And that's himself. You see, do you see how glorious Jesus Christ is? Do you feel loved by him as you should, that he would give you? his glory, and show it to you. We were created to be caught up in something so much bigger than ourselves and we forget about ourselves and find satisfaction in that which is truly satisfying. And so my prayer for you, for me, for us, is that we would know ourselves loved by God in that he created in us a faith to see him for who he is, to see him for who he is, which is glorious. Amen and amen. Let us pray.
Father in heaven, please help us to see you for who you are and your son whom you sent. Thank you for doing all that was necessary for our eyes to be awakened to the beauty of who Christ is for us and to find great joy in him. Lord, help us to know what it truly means to be loved by you. Help us to know. Let our, our knowledge of your love for us be so God-centered that we, we forget ourselves and we're caught up in who you are. And that's where true joy is found. Give us grace. Lord, I pray for Southside Baptist Church. I thank you for this church. Thank you for the work that you're doing among this people here. Would you continue to use them to spread the love of Jesus Christ in Abilene and beyond? To, to give people around here who don't know Jesus, who couldn't care less about Jesus, a vision of who he is so that they would long for Jesus, that you would work in their hearts to long for them, long for Christ. Thank you for Southside Baptist Church. Thank you for the faithful ministry here. We pray for many, many, many more years of fruitful service to you in this context here, in this part of Texas. Use them for your glory, for your glory, because it's all about you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.